Hey guys, it's the Covenant Courses podcast, and uh, today we're going to be continuing in our look at the inductive method of Bible study. We've talked about observing the scripture, and uh, last week we started talking about uh, interpreting the Word of God, and we're going to continue in that train of thought today, um, continuing to talk about the meta narrative of scripture, and also starting to look through some lenses for interpreting the Bible. And so um, excited that you guys are with us today. Uh, thanks so much for listening. Be sure to check out the course syllabus as well in the show notes. And let's get into this week's conversation. Would you, would you like to flex your muscles? Would I like to flex my muscles? Yeah. I literally. Yeah, do it. <laughs> I want. <laughs> give me your give me your three minute Old Testament. The Old Testament in three minutes. It took us a, an hour in the last episode to go through. So the it Old should Testament. be easy work. Yeah, uh, in the beginning, God created the heaven. Is there a timer on, by the way? Yeah. Uh, I'll do a timer. Do a timer. Okay. And let's see. Yeah. Let's, let's go see for what it. happens here. You ready? Old Testament in three minutes. Old Testament in three minutes. We're setting a timer. All right, hit it. Okay, so in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He made everything. He made the man and the woman, put them in the Garden of Eden, uh, gave them authority and power, um, and walked with them in the garden. He was present with them. And yet, um, he gave them rules. There were certain things that they could not do. Namely, they couldn't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which was a tree in the garden. And yet a serpent comes and convinces them that God is lying to them or that God is misleading them in some way by telling them that if they eat from the tree, that they will die. He says, you surely won't die. And they choose to believe the serpent rather than God. They eat from the tree and everything is forever changed. God um, places the man and the woman under a curse. Um, He uh, expels them from the garden and into uh, sort of this new world of brokenness. Um, They have children. Their children are born sinful, born inherently sinful, and uh, one, Cain, kills the other, Abel, and things just degenerate from there Um, until God calls a man named Abram uh, to follow him. And uh, Abram, despite perhaps not having any knowledge of God prior to his call, is obedient to him and leaves his home and goes to what is ultimately the land of Canaan, which is this land God leads him to. And God makes a significant promise to Abraham that forms, um, I, I think, the primary overarching narrative of the Old Testament, which is that through Abraham's descendants, um, the nations will be blessed. And there are promises of this land for the people and um, that his descendants will be numerous. And God blesses him with a child, uh, multiple children, but but namely the child Isaac, who uh, subsequently has children who have children. And these people form what are known as the patriarchs of Israel, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And um, after several hundred years, Abram's descendants, though, uh, fall into slavery in the nation of Egypt, and God sends a man named Moses to um, save them and to be a redeemer to them, and Moses comes and um, convinces Pharaoh, along very much with the help of God, through plagues and other trials to release the people, and um, God protects them. Um, God uh, saves them from the forces of Pharaoh. He brings them safely into the wilderness. And um, I'm not doing very good. I'm, I'm, we're, we're, we're... I think you're doing great. We're at about <laughs> Exodus 15, yes, and we're right at three minutes. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. <laughs> so I made it uh, a book and a half into the Old Testament. Well, just keep going. Yeah. Well, so um, God uh, saves the people of Israel from the clutches of Egypt and uh, brings them ultimately, despite great disobedience on their part and great unbelief, brings them back to this land of Canaan that he originally promised to Abram. And there he calls them to be his people and for him to be their God. And 
what follows is just a story of uh, mostly them choosing not to do that, to not be his people, and to instead worship other false gods and to go against God's will. And there are times where things look bright and it looks like they're doing what God wants them to do, but those quickly fade and they turn against him. One bright spot is uh, a king named David that the Lord anoints and calls to lead the people of Israel. And David leads Israel into sort of a golden age and is um, sort of a savior figure, much like Joseph in the book of Genesis or Moses. Um, David does sort of bring the people back into um, the will of the Lord, and yet David is not perfect either. Mm -hmm. He also has great sin in his life and great problems in his life. His son Solomon uh, builds uh, an ornate and beautiful temple to the Lord in Jerusalem, but Solomon also turns against the Lord and winds up worshiping other gods. Um, a great bulk of the Old Testament involves uh, the nation of Israel splitting in two into a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom following essentially a civil war, and then there are many hundred years, hundreds of years in which these two, formerly one nation, are two separate nations. And God sends prophets to continually call the people back to him, to call the people back to obedience. There are times where it seems like the people are doing this, um, primarily in the southern kingdom of Judah, where the line of David still exists. But for the most part, they don't. And God ultimately, after several hundred years of warnings, sends destruction, and the people are carried away into exile. And yet God preserves a remnant of the nation of Israel in uh, the people of the southern kingdom of Judah, and after many years of exile in Babylon, they are able to come back to the land and rebuild the temple, even though they are not a free people, they're still under the thumb of other superpowers, and um, that ultimately stays that, that way until the time of Christ, when, when Jesus arrives on the scene. So, yikes. That's pretty good. That, was that five minutes or less? At least? Yeah, so you, you took about three minutes for the first book and a half, but then the other, you know, 37, you got through in two minutes. So <laughs> well, five total. Well, and this was kind of the case last time um, because... Yeah, I think we did. Because we weren't following any kind of a script or anything. Um, it, it does seem to me that the first few books of the Old Testament are incredibly important to understanding the rest of the Old Testament. It's, mm -hmm. it's like, if we don't have Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the rest of it is just not going to make a lot of sense. Yeah. Um, For several reasons. You get, the, you get the major covenants there. That's right. But you also, one of my favorite things about these early books is you get the playbook, essentially, for the mm. rest of human history. In mm. Genesis 3, you get the little... Opportunity on the table, you know, chance for greatness, humanity fails, God saves them regardless. There's your cycle that's going to be played on repeat for the rest of the Old Testament. Yeah, yeah. And that, yeah, so you get all of that in the first few chapters, and then, so yeah, you can kind of speed through the rest of just mentioning some of the highlights and saying, by the way, this is Genesis 3 again, but now right, it looks like right. Judges. This is Genesis 3 again, but now it looks like Kings. Mm, so. Yeah. So last time we spent um, our our time talking about the meta narrative of Scripture, and um, I think ultimately what what we mean when we talk about the meta narrative or the overarching kind of storyline is is not as we you know as we just did to some extent. It's not just looking at the individual stories that make up the Old Testament, but instead really kind of examining the key themes that carry through the mm -hmm. Old Testament. Um, you know, so there is that theme of um, sin and restoration, yeah. and sin and restoration, and sin and restoration that we see throughout the Old Testament. There, There is a theme of redeemers, as we've talked about, Joseph, Moses, David, people who on some level save other people and, and who... Um, are self-sacrificing on some level. And um, we think all of these things are ultimately pointing us, and also the theme of covenant, that these things are all pointing us to Christ, mm -hmm. that um, in, in this covenant that God makes with Abraham, that his descendants would not only be numerous, but would be a blessing to the nations, that the ultimate fulfillment of that is Christ in this theme of 
uh, sin and redemption, that the Redeemer who ultimately comes in, who is perfect in all ways and who is capable of redeeming completely, is Christ. Yeah. And um, this theme of uh, monarchy and kingship and um, a king who's truly going to um, be like the perfect king of Israel, that that is ultimately found in Christ. And so there are a number of threads that we can pull on there, but all that's to say that we really see the whole of the Old Testament as pointing to Jesus, and the New Testament makes that case as well. Mm-hmm. That, um, you know, even, I mean, we're currently in a study of the Gospel of John, and um, just this last week we were looking at the end of John chapter 1, where uh, the disciples of John the Baptist discover that Jesus Christ, uh, or that Jesus of Nazareth, is the Christ, the Messiah. And what they go and tell other people is, we have found the one that basically the Old Testament was talking about. We, we have found the one that Moses and the prophets mm-hmm. were talking about, and it's Jesus of Nazareth. Yep. Um, and so that's, uh, you know, I guess now in less than 10 minutes, <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's a bit of a summation. So what we're going to do today is we're going to continue pulling on this thread because ultimately what we're trying to talk about here is how we go about interpreting the Bible. And having an understanding of the storyline or the meta narrative of the Bible is incredibly important because it is not a collection of separate individual stories, all of these things come together to make up a cohesive narrative. Yeah. And so understanding what that narrative is, is going to be critical for us as we seek to interpret the scripture. So where we're going to start today is we ended the Old Testament last week. We're going to go into the New Testament today, and then we're going to begin talking about just some some key things for us to be thinking about when we're trying to interpret the Old Testament specifically. So, Taylor, you want to take us into the New Testament, and um, I'm going to put you on the spot as well and get, sure. to get us started on on that journey. Yeah, so do we want to start with this, like, chronologically or just in kind of the order that we have the books? Uh, that's a great question. Why don't we do it chronologically? Okay. That makes the most sense to me. Yeah. Um, so... Well, okay, next question. Chronologically from when they were written or the events that are being recorded? Let's do the let's do the events. Yeah, that would be super confusing. <laughs> so so we get after 400 plus years of silence from the prophets and uh, the word of God, we get the voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. The New Testament opens up jumping out with John the Baptist. Um, All of the Gospels account for this man. He was a prophet. He was out there baptizing folks in the wilderness uh, with a message of repentance. And each of the Gospel authors start with John as this precursor to Jesus that, again, was foretold from the Old Testament. So we have John who prepares the way for Jesus. Um, He has this ministry of repentance that, as you mentioned, he had a lot of followers. He had a lot of disciples who, many of which end up following Jesus as well. And so Jesus is baptized by John in the Jordan. The Holy Spirit descends on him, and the gospel authors kind of make the case that this solidifies his identity as the Son of God and as the Messiah. And so the rest of the gospel accounts really play out how how that makes sense and what that what the implications are of Jesus being the Son of God. And so <clears throat> Jesus travels through um, Israel and some of the surrounding Gentile nations performing miracles, driving out demons, showing these awesome displays of power that were only seen by Yahweh in the past, and along the way explaining that he was the fulfillment of the Old Testament, specifically the law that Israel had been trying to follow and that, as we discussed, were they were really bad at doing. Yeah, and that's a huge piece of this. Like, not only is Jesus the fulfillment of the covenant with Abraham, that he is this ultimate blessing to the nations, but Jesus is also the fulfillment of the covenant with Moses, which is primarily this covenant of, of the law, that, that I will be your God, you will be my people, and... And yet, 
the only way for your sins to be forgiven under the law was for there to be animal sacrifice. That's right. And yet none of those animal sacrifices were like a permanent sacrifice. They were all temporary. And so sacrifice would have to be made over and over and over again. And mm-hmm. Jesus arrives as this perfect sacrifice, as this perfect fulfillment of the law. And it's a claim that he makes of himself, that he hasn't come to abolish the law, meaning I haven't come to just say, oh, we're not going to do that anymore. He comes to say that is now finished. It is now completed because I am the perfect, spotless, unblemished lamb. Yeah. And he even takes folks who may think that they're following the law to the T and kind of undercuts that by getting to uh, the root of really the intention of the law. So he takes folks that think they're following, and he uses the Ten Commandments as an example, who think they're following them really well by not killing people. Mm. And he says, yeah, that's great. You didn't murder anybody. But when you consider someone an idiot or you hate someone, you hold that anger in your heart, you're murdering them. Mm. And so he, by fulfilling the law, he offers up the the real intention of it all along, right? right? Which right. was love God and love people. Yeah, there are none who are righteous, Yeah, not even one. And one of Jesus's, Jesus has a lot of issues with a particular group during his day who are called the Pharisees, who were sort of the Bible thumpers of their day. They were the conservative, um, you know, God, Yahweh followers of their day. And Jesus t- takes them to task because... Even though their outward actions are in accordance with the law, what Jesus knows is that what's on the inside, their heart, um, is not. It's dirty. It's broken. It's sinful. Jesus uses the analogy of a cup that's washed clean on the outside but is filthy on the inside. Yeah. Or a tomb that is whitewashed on the outside but inside it's just nothing but death. And Jesus's problem is not that they have sin, even though that is a problem. We all have sin, though. Jesus's problem with them is their hypocrisy. That's the word that gets repeated over and over again. It's that they think they are perfect. It's, it's as if they think they are saving themselves through their good works, through mm-hmm. their actions. And what Jesus wants to make clear is that, no, 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 that, that's, that's actually not happening. That's actually a facade because I see the heart. I see what's really going on inside. Yeah, and this theme of the heart being the real problem behind all this is also very prevalent in the Old Testament. And so if you're familiar with the prophets who come after the law, Most of what they're speaking to, especially when they talk about this new covenant that God will initiate in the future, most of what they're speaking to is a heart problem that humans have. At the base of all this, even if we're trying our best to follow the law, which a lot of Israelites were, you're still going to have a heart problem. So it takes more than just the law, and it takes more than like an ascension to a certain knowledge to be able to follow God properly. You need a new heart. Mm. And so that's what Jesus is here to make the way for, to provide as being a perfect priest who can, who can administer this ministry without, without failure, without any blemish of himself, and a perfect sacrifice who can allow for the renewing of one's heart. Yeah, so this is huge, and we're going to talk about this a little bit more in a moment, but um, the two primary covenants that we see in the Bible, and there are more than just these two, but the two primary covenants we see are the covenant that God makes with Abraham, which we've already talked about, but then the covenant that comes through Christ, which is most often known as the new covenant. Yeah, And these are not two uh, covenants that run uh, together at the same time. Instead, Jesus' new covenant that is fulfilled through uh, his death and resurrection, through his body and his blood, this new covenant fulfills the old covenant and becomes the central covenant with mankind, not mm-hmm. just with Jews, but with mankind in general. Yeah. And, and that's significant. We'll talk more about that in a moment. And so, okay, so this kind of brings us into the rest of the New Testament canon, which I feel like maybe we already got off on a little bit of a tangent <laughs> once or twice. But so Why not? You've got, I know, right? So we've got four gospel accounts, and these chronicle the life and ministry and teaching and works, and namely 
the persecution, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus, solidifying him as not just Israel's Messiah, but the Savior of the world, right. the one to redeem all of creation. Following that, we, that's not the end of the, old, of, of the New Testament. We've got plenty more. So we've got letters yeah. written to these new fledgling Jesus communities, these little pockets of followers of Jesus uh, in the first century around Israel and the rest of kind of the Mediterranean. So we've got letters from the apostles, guys like Paul writing to specific churches in some cases or writing to all of the early Christians in other cases, uh, addressing certain matters, but namely uh, really solidifying what it means to have this faith, what it means to rely on Jesus for faith rather than on the law as, especially if you're an Israelite, you may have been used to. You've got guys like Peter writing to this. You have um, James, one of the brothers of Jesus, and Jude. Uh, John, who was one of the gospel authors, also writes to these, writes to different churches and, and addresses some of these issues. So you have letters, which really sum up, I guess, another third or two-thirds of the New Testament. And then we end with an easy-to-understand book that everybody's real familiar with, and there's nothing debatable at all in its contents, Revelation. <laughs> wow. Yeah, I'll let you take that one. Yikes. Um, that's a pretty good overview. Yeah, except, oh, except for Revelation. Yeah. <laughs> Revelation's the only book of prophecy in the New Testament that we find. Mm -hmm. um, it is, I think as we've talked about in previous episodes, it is apocalyptic in nature, right. um, which relates to things being revealed, but but also in most cases relates to sort of the end of all things or the or last things. Um, so it is, uh, the fancy word is eschatological, eschatological or eschatological, um, <laughs> not scatological. Um, and, and so it's like the only book that is like, say the book of Daniel mm -hmm. in the old Testament, where there is heavy metaphor. There are these bizarro dream vision type things. And it's, it's, you, you joke in, about it being not debatable at all because it is so debatable, right? right? Like people argue about this all over the place. And um, and yet, with that all said, I do think there are some things that, um, some kind of high-level things that we can come away with from um, the eschatology of the book of Revelation and of the New Testament in general. Uh, point number one I would make is that the New Testament makes the case that Jesus is returning. Mm -hmm. um, that is not debatable, in my view. Jesus will return. And when Jesus returns, it's going to be a great day for those who are in Christ, for those who are believers. It's not going to be a good day for those who aren't. Yeah. Um, and those are the two things we know yeah. from reading the New Testament. Yes. Meaning the stuff that gets debated is debated because we have less clarity on it. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which especially includes the contents of a book like Revelation. Sure. Um, Revelation makes the case that there will be a new heavens and a new earth. Um, and what's interesting is a lot of people um, interpret a great bulk of Revelation as if it is primarily symbolic, that primarily what we see in Revelation is symbolic for other things. Um, for some reason, with the new heavens and the new earth, people receive that as being more literal yeah. in nature. Um and, and yet, it seems to be the case, again, overarching narrative here, it seems to be the case that um, those who are in Christ are going to be welcomed into God's family as beloved children, that it is the blood of Christ that uh, makes the way for them to be adopted into God's family, and that we will be with him forever. Yeah. Um, and that we will um, be in a situation where sin is done away with. And the things that plague us in our world today, um, such as death and sickness and um, hunger and mental health issues and a lot of the things that Jesus addresses through his miraculous work, 
that those things will be a thing of the past. Mm-hmm. Um, and so this is something that is, um, I think, foundational to our hope in Christ. Like when we talk about hope, it's not just hope in the moment. It's hope for what is to come in the future because of what Christ has done. And even though we don't understand it fully, and even though I'm not sure that we can really speak about it, um, especially at a detailed level with a great degree of certainty, um, we can speak with certainty about what will transpire regarding us being with the Lord as beloved children forever, for all eternity. Yeah. Um, that we will, that we are, we who are in Christ are, are eternal now. And um, our sin has been removed. Our guilt has been removed. We have been reconciled to the Father through Christ. Yeah. And that this is what the whole of the Old Testament was pointing towards. That even though mankind sinned against God almost immediately and then uh, lived through uh, thousands of years of this sin cycle, that ultimately Christ comes along and through him taking on all sin on the cross, that those who have faith in Christ are essentially stepping out of this world of brokenness and into a new world, and that new world Jesus calls the kingdom of God. Mm-hmm. And um, that we are there spiritually now, um, but eventually we will be there fully and completely. And that's what we often call the already but not yet. Yeah, That we are already in it, but we don't yet fully see it. That's and, right. And yet we will one day. Have you ever preached on Revelation? Not really. Uh, not like a uh, like an all the way through type thing. I've preached on certain parts of Revelation. Have you wanted to? Um, not really. <laughs> not really. Um, and and for a few reasons. One, I kind of got burned out on Revelation in the late nineties early 2000s uh-huh. when there was just so much there was so much hubbub about it around the millennium yeah and so many books that came out and i was fascinated by it at the time and read a lot of things a lot of things that i now would not agree with sure um but but also man so, so re, prophecy is best understood in hindsight like we just got done teaching through the minor prophets and it's, it's somewhat, I don't want to use the word easy, but it's somewhat easy to understand the Old Testament prophets because by and large we have the benefit of hindsight. Because most yeah. of what the Old Testament prophets talked about were things that came to fruition either within their lifetime or very shortly after. Yeah. You know, so the minor prophets talk at great length about the destruction that's going to be coming for uh, Israel and for Judah. And those things come within mm-hmm. a relatively short amount of time. With the book of Revelation, by and large, we don't have the benefit of hindsight, and so all we can do is really speculate about certain things. When you get into, you know, different colored horses and bowls of wrath and things like that, yeah. um, and monsters coming out of the sea and, and, and those kinds of things, it's like what, what has happened historically is that people have primarily interpreted, the, interpreted those things through the lens of their current generation through the lens of their lifetime. And so what people are inclined to do is, is say, well, this this monster that Revelation talks about, that must be the nation of Russia you know, right. or something like that. And yet 500 years ago, it would have been something different. And 500 years before that, it would have been something different. And so we, we just don't know. It's one of those things that I, I, it's fine for us not to know it, I think. It's fine for us not to understand it fully as long as we understand the larger picture of what I think John and the New Testament writers in general are presenting to us, mm-hmm. which is ultimately a gospel account, right? Yeah. That that there is hope and a future for us in Christ because of his sacrifice. Um, so I think that, that that would be a primary takeaway for me from the book of Revelation, not necessarily deciphering all of these individual symbols and metaphors that are employed. I think yeah. it's something we will understand at some point. I think it's it's something we see through a glass dimly right, right. now, to use Paul's words. So um, can it be preached through? I think so. Um, 
it it can be really challenging though because it's hard not to want to get into the minutia of all of the different positions and speculations about what certain things yeah are. i feel like you'd have to lay a lot of groundwork yeah to even try and be on the same page and then still hold a lot of things loosely mm-hmm. yeah okay i was just wondering so, um, you know, with, with last episode and what we just walked through, that is just sort of a basic overview of the whole Bible and um, the, uh, the you know, basic narrative of what's going on. Taylor, what I want to get into now is, in the remaining time we have this week is we're going to start hitting on um, just a few things for us to be thinking about as we walk through the Old Testament specifically. We're going to call these interpretive lenses. And um, before I get there, I want to just start with just a few key words. These are maybe things we've said already or that you will hear us say in the future, but um, just... Uh, want to establish, hopefully, uh, just some common vocabulary for us. First of all, when we start talking about interpreting the Bible, we're talking about a field of study that's known as hermeneutics. Um, Taylor, you just got out of a hermeneutics class, what, a couple semesters ago, yeah, right? Yeah, I did. Yeah. I really loved it. Yeah. Uh, hermeneutics was introduced to us as the art and science of biblical interpretation. The mm-hmm. reason being, it is both an art and a science. Um, and it's also... It's also not the act of interpretation, but kind of the tools by which you interpret. And so hermeneutics is an art because you can get better at it with practice. It is a science because there are some rules that you would do well to follow. Right. But um, I think my best analogy that I've used to explain hermeneutics to people that might not be as familiar is it's like a a carpenter's woodworking set. Mm. If I came to you and said, hey, Wesson, I want to be a carpenter, which I'm not, and you said, cool, here's a garage full of all the tools you need. Well, that doesn't make me a carpenter. Right, and then if you right. go through for a couple hours and explain what each tool is for, it still doesn't make me a carpenter, but now I can at least start trying. Yeah. And so that's what an understanding of hermeneutics gives us is an overview of all the tools we have at our disposal in order to put them to practice interpreting scripture. And we could do a, an entire podcast series on, on just this Let's subject, do it. obviously. Um, we're going to do certainly an abridged version of this right now just to get you started, you know, because to use that analogy, um, giving you a garage full of tools um, is is potentially overwhelming. Whereas if if we give you a saw and a hammer, you know, and a screwdriver, then let's start there and and begin mastering those things and then we'll move on to other things. Yeah. Um, So that's kind of the approach we're going to take. But that's that's what hermeneutics is, if you hear us talk about that. Uh, Two other words to think about, and we've already mentioned one of these words, I think, and and that's the word exegesis. Um, I think we talked about exegesis, Taylor, when we were uh, introducing the inductive Bible study method, and we talked about just that process of working our way um, from the specifics out to the general, um, that process of induction, and that that what what we're ultimately doing there is the work of biblical exegesis, that we are extracting from the text its actual meaning. Yep. Um, We're letting the text speak for itself, and we said the opposite of that is eisegesis, which is what we don't want to do. Eisegesis is when we are inserting our own meaning into the text, and that's not what we're after. We want to let the Bible speak for itself. But another word that gets used is the word exposition. Um, this I, I most often hear this word around preaching. Yeah, you same. know, So it may not be a word that, that you're familiar with, but um, you'll hear uh, somebody uh, say that, that their form of preaching is expository. And um, biblical exposition is simply the process of exegeting a text to to determine the interpretation of the text. So um, we're not just establishing context, we're establishing context, and we're allowing the text to speak for itself so that we can say, here's what the text means, Mm -hmm. um, or here's the purpose of the text. So the difference here between maybe using eisegesis would be an expository sermon on, let's say, like Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, mm. would be, let's work through this text and see what Jesus is saying to these people about these issues, whereas maybe using eisegesis and working backwards would be, let's have a sermon series on 
how to be a better husband and use what Jesus says about adultery to fit our theme. Yeah. Is that fair? Sure. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We're, we're, we're coming in, in, that, in that scenario, eisegesis is us coming to the text... Um, with an agenda. With an agenda of our own that we've de- developed. Okay. Not, not coming to the text with an open mind and really examining it for what is there so that it comes alive in and of itself, that, it's, that it speaks. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, yeah, hermeneutics, exegesis, and then exposition or um, the work of, you know, expositing the scripture. Um, exposing what is there. Um, okay, so uh, five interpretive lenses. We're going to look at three today. Two of these we've already talked about to some extent. The one we cannot get away from, and we saw this in, in that observation step of reading and observing what's on the page, is we have to have context, 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 context. Who is the author? Who is the audience? What's the date? What was the author's intent? Uh, what's the genre of literature? What's around the text? Um, most often, I think if something's going to be taken out of context, it's going to be because a piece of a larger text gets removed from what's around it and um, is forced to stand alone. And when a text is forced to stand alone with no context, you can make it say whatever you want it to say. You can find a verse to back up any point that you're trying to make so long as you take that verse out of context. That's right. Um, So this is the most important thing, and we'll continue to talk about it and drive it home. We cannot arrive at an accurate interpretation, and we certainly can't arrive at an accurate application of a passage of Scripture if we have not done the work of establishing context. And as we have said before... You don't have to be a scholar to do this work. You don't have to have a theological library at your disposal. You just need some time and willingness and a good study Bible or maybe a a commentary um, to just help you gain some basic understanding of what the context of the passage is. But even outside of who's the author, where is this, who, who are they talking to, those kinds of things, just reading, as we said, larger chunks of Scripture is going to help you establish context. Um, so do not miss that. The second yeah. thing, the second interpretive lens for uh, interpreting the Old Testament is the lens of covenant. And um, Taylor, you want to walk us through, because there are a number of covenants that we find in the Old Testament. Um, you want to just walk us through quickly what some of those covenants are? Yeah. However, I'm going to start with a question, because I see we're showing uh, one of the first covenants in the Bible as being between God and Adam. Mm-hmm. And that's something that I don't know that I've looked at in that way necessarily. Is this just with the assignment to rule and reign? Yeah. Well, so what is a covenant? Oh, right. So a covenant is a promise um, between God and humanity with certain outcomes, and it can take different different forms. So we have covenants that are known as a royal grant, where God promises to give some blessing to humanity that's based on no action of their own part, but simply on God's characteristics. There are covenants that are made between two parties, where God promises to bestow blessings if the other party will uphold part of their promise. There are So I think those are really the main two kinds that are throughout the Bible, but it's a promise with an expected blessing or gift on the other side of it. Right, right. So God makes the man and the woman. He creates them in his own image. He puts them in the garden. Um, Genesis 1, 28, uh, and God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, which is often known as the creative mandate, mm-hmm. um, a command that God gives to the man and the woman, uh, be fruitful and multiply, which, which to me doesn't only mean have a lot of kids. Right. Um, there is also this larger idea of what it means to be fruitful, um, to be productive. Yeah. Um, and, and so I, I almost kind of read that as two separate things in a way, even though they are, you know, you know, closely aligned, that we are to be fruitful um, in light of who God is and what he's done for us. And, and we're also supposed to multiply. 
Yeah, and right? they go hand in hand. If you multiply and you're fruitful, you will fill the earth and mm-hmm. subdue it. You will have dominion over these things. Okay. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so God is giving commands here, and there are also promises that are a part of this. You know, if you will do these things that I'm telling you to do, you will have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God goes on and tells them about all the great things he's given them. He's given them every plant. He's, um, you know, he's um, given them authority over the beasts of the earth and, and all of those kinds of things. Um, so okay. so there, is a, um, there is sort of an agreement here, right, that God is making with Adam. Um, because at this point, at least, God has not made the woman yet. That comes in in chapter 2. And so that's often referred to as the Adamic covenant. Okay. Um, Hosea chapter 6, if you turn there, Hosea is one of the Old Testament minor prophets. But in Hosea 6 verse 7, what Hosea says is that Adam transgressed the covenant. Um, and he's not talking about the covenant God made with Abraham because that right. didn't that didn't happen in Adam's lifetime. Um, but instead, he's talking about um, the people of Israel, and he's saying they have transgressed against the covenant that you made with Abraham in the same way that Adam transgressed against the covenant that you made with him. Okay. Um, so yeah, that's that's one of the covenants. All right. So yeah, so God makes a covenant with Adam. These are in the first pages of Scripture. There is a covenant made with Noah. This is following the flood. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and what is what is that? What is that promise that God the makes? The covenant there is to never again decreate or destroy creation like God did in the flood. Yeah. So there will there there will never be that destruction or destruction on that level again. Which was seemingly a, a flood that covered the whole earth. That's right. Yeah. So yeah. there's still floods. <laughs> yeah, there are. And there's still destruction. Yeah. But there will never be global destruction mm. on that level. Uh, there's a covenant made with Abraham in Genesis chapters 12 and more specifically in chapter 15. And this is the major covenant that we talk about where God says, I'll bless you. Uh, I'll give you land. I'll give you a name. I'll give you descendants as numerous as the stars or as the sand on the shores. And this is this is the big covenant. And from Abraham's line will come the one who also was talked about uh, in Genesis 3, right after the fall, the one who will crush the serpent's head. That's right. So this is the sort of overarching covenant of the Old Testament. And everything that comes after it, there are two more covenants we'll mention that come after this, but they really function as sub-covenants in a way under the umbrella of the Abrahamic covenant because... They are not like a new promise. They are sort of an additional promise yeah. that falls in line with what God has promised through the Abrahamic covenant. Yeah, with Abraham, God is telling him, I'm going to create a people. These will be my people, and it's coming from you, from your line. Mm-hmm. And so then after Abraham, you get the covenant with Moses and the people of Israel at Mount Sinai. And this one's really the the marriage type of covenant. This is the two parties show up. There are terms that are outlined, and both parties agree to it. And there, there's a whole passage in Exodus where Israel's all saying, yes, yes, we agree, we agree, right yeah. before they go build a golden cow. Yeah, this is, in today's world, you, you mentioned the marriage-type covenant. Yeah. That's, that's often the analogy that's used to describe this, um, because, because in your marriage, Taylor, you guys didn't, you guys didn't come together under like a contractual understanding of what you were getting into. You came together under a covenantal understanding of what you were getting into. And the best way to think about this is, you know, kind of the old school marriage vows themselves, you know, that in sickness and health and good times and bad times type thing, which is basically you covenanting with another person to say, I'm going to be here. I'm going to be a part of this relationship. I'm going to stand by you no matter what you do mm-hmm. and no matter what uh, you know kind of cards are dealt to us I, none of those things give me the right to bail and God makes this covenant with a people who are largely unfaithful to that's him. right and yet God's perfection God's um, like power and lordship and goodness are seen through the fact that he remains faithful to the people 
even though they are supremely unfaithful to him. Yeah. Yeah, namely, so we get the Abrahamic covenant. We get the covenant out at Mount Sinai with Moses, and then the people fail immediately. Mm-hmm. And so the rest of the law that is given is kind of adding to or, or maybe recontextualizing this covenant with Moses and Israel. And then you get the Davidic covenant, which is kind of the, the promise that's cast far out in the future of the Messiah. Yeah, yeah. The Davidic covenant, Davidic being with, with David, David. That's yeah. right. Um, has to do with the fact that there is a coming Davidic king, um, which, you know, I don't, I don't know that people really knew what to expect there. Um, I think they thought that perhaps this will be another human king like David or from the line of David who will once again be an incredible ruler over Israel and will bring up, and David was also an incredible military leader, and that this person will once again restore Israel to its place of prominence and will once again bring wealth back into our nation and will once again make us a free people and and all of those kinds of things. And I think that's some of the confusion over Jesus as the Messiah and oh, yeah. beca- in the way that he approaches things is Jesus is the fulfillment of that Davidic covenant but he is not an earthly king in the way that David was. And his primary objective was not to restore Israel to a place of earthly prominence or wealth or power. It was something else entirely, right? Mm -hmm. So Jesus is the fulfillment of all of that, and yet when he shows up, he doesn't look at all like what people perhaps expected. That's right. And he's he's the perfect fulfillment really of... I guess you could say of all these covenants, he is the perfect Adam. Mm. Uh, he's the perfect Israelite. He not only upholds the law, but fulfills it. He is the king and priest from the line of David. And so he brings all of these covenants together by being the perfect human and being God. Yeah, yeah. So the Abrahamic covenant, as we've said, that's that's the big one. That's the overarching covenant of the Old Testament. And when Jesus says, I haven't come to abolish the law and the prophets, he's not only talking about that covenant, he's talking about the whole of the Old Testament. He's, he's saying, I haven't come to do away with the Abrahamic covenant, and I haven't come to do away with the law that I gave to Moses. I've come to fulfill all of those things. And the way that he fulfills that is by establishing a new covenant. He says this new covenant is established in his blood. And um, the new covenant of Christ is that he, as we've said, is the perfect, spotless, unblemished lamb, the perfect sacrifice for sin. He is the one who is the atonement. He is the one that takes on our sin and puts it to death yeah. and, and removes it. Um, so along with the Abrahamic covenant, the new covenant of the New Testament is the now the covenant that we're living under. It's the covenantal age, if you will, that we're living in. Um, So we say all this to say, remember our purpose here is interpreting the Old Testament. When we are reading the Old Testament, one of the questions we want to ask is, what covenantal age are we in? Are we living in a time, in, in the passage that we're studying, is this a time before the Abrahamic covenant? Is this a time after the Abrahamic covenant? If it's a time after the Abrahamic covenant, is it a time in which the Mosaic covenant is also in effect? Like, So is this a time after Mount Sinai and the Ten Commandments and God giving the law to Moses? Um, is it before or after the Davidic covenant? Um, those are questions that we want to be asking. And um, we'll give you an example of, of why this matters. Um, Leviticus 19.19 um, is one of those famous uh, parts of the law of Moses that people love to kind of poke at. Um, and what it says is, you shall not wear a garment of cloth made of two kinds of material. Right. Right. So so when you read through all of the laws that God gave to Israel, there are some things in there that make that make our modern ears go, what? You know, yeah. like, what, what in the world is going on here? Um, so how does an understanding of the covenantal age help us contextualize and interpret a verse like Leviticus 19.19? Right. So if we're looking in terms of where we are along the story, we know that we're, after the, we're under the Abrahamic covenant, and we're in Leviticus now. 
We are post Mount Sinai. We're under the Mosaic Covenant. So we've got the law. We are not yet, or as we're reading this, right, in the text, we're not yet under the new covenant. Christ has not come. And so these right. laws have a purpose. If we understand the book of Leviticus especially, this purpose is to set the people of Israel apart from all of their neighbors. Not necessarily to set me in the year 2022 apart from you as I wear my cotton and polyester blend sweater. Right, right. And there's all kinds. I mean, if you just read in that chapter, Leviticus 19, I mean, there's all kinds of stuff. Um, You shall not let your cattle breed with a different kind. You shall not sow your field with two kinds of seed. You shall not wear a garment made of two kinds of material. I mean, there's just all kinds of stuff that that we go, why why is that important? Yeah. But but what you're getting at there is that God's intention for the people of Israel was that they would just be totally different from all the other nations, that they would be a distinct people. And I think there I think you can make the case, and we, we don't have to get into it today, but I think you can make the case with a lot of this that there is functional purpose in these things as well. It isn't simply that I want you guys to be weird and different. I think God also has intention, um, sure. p- particularly in a lot of the dietary requirements. Um, God doesn't want his people eating things that have been sacrificed to false gods. Um, I think God doesn't want his people eating things that would potentially um, make them ill or sick. Yeah. Um, so um, those are those are a lot of the things that you find in the law as well. It's like, what, what should you eat? What should you not eat? Yeah, and uh, there's like two chapters in Leviticus, two or three chapters on what to do with mold in your house. Right. Some of these right. things are just good laws to have. Yeah. <laughs> so, but, so here's the question. Um, if we're reading Leviticus 19, what you said is we're under the Abrahamic covenant at that point. We're also under the Mosaic covenant at that point, but we are not yet under the new covenant with Christ. So, so why is it that now that we are under the new covenant with Christ, why is it that now you are wearing a cotton polyester blend and you don't feel any sense of moral conviction about that? Is that no longer a law that we are to follow as God's people? Um, why, why is it that those things that I just talked about are kind of non-issues in today's world? So, yeah, that's a good question. Um, I guess we could go a few ways with this. Would it, be, would it be wrong to say that as part of God's people, I am set apart in different ways than maybe the clothing that I wear? Yeah, potentially. Um, I, I think a bigger answer here could be simply that Jesus has fulfilled all of these things. Yeah. So if I'm loving God and loving people, I'm fulfilling the law. Yeah. Jesus says that that is the summation of the law and the prophets, that that everything in the Old Testament is pointing us to be a people who love God and love our neighbors as ourselves. And that if that is the primary thing that we're seeking to do, then we are, in a sense, seeking to fulfill the law and the prophets, the whole of the Old Testament. Um, The other way you can understand that, which isn't different but kind of corresponds with what I just said, is that Jesus, as the fulfillment of those things, he doesn't doesn't come and say, we're no longer going to do that stuff anymore, like I said earlier. He, He arrives and basically says, we now have a new way. We are now sort of transitioning into a new way. And in this new way, um, I am the sacrifice for sin, right? I am the one that provides atonement when you mess up or when you fail. This is, this is one of the questions that a lot of people have, though, which is I read the Old Testament and I see all of these things, and then I look at the church today and go, well, we don't do a lot of these things. So, yeah. um, I'm, you know, I'm not, I'm eating plenty of bacon in my life. So, am I like in violation of the law of God? And what seems to be the case, uh, from the example of the of the New Testament, from the example of the early church, is that they believe that Jesus had affected effectively ended most of these laws, with the exception of what we would call the moral law, which is, I think, best summarized in the Ten Commandments. Mm-hmm. So um, the New Testament, and particularly the Gospels, and I think you can go even further and say specifically Jesus in the Gospels, I think talks about all of the Ten Commandments, or nine out of the Ten Commandments, like he, he references them specifically. Mm-hmm. Um, and so you can't come away from reading the story of Jesus and think, well, I no longer am under this thou shall not murder thing right. anymore. So an example of what we're talking about here in the Gospels would be something like Mark 7. 
Um, and this is Jesus speaking, and it says, And he said to them, starting in verse 18, And he said to them, Then are you also without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him, since it enters not his heart but his stomach and is expelled? Thus he declared all foods clean. And he said, What comes out of a person is what defiles him. For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. So Jesus is talking about what makes us unclean, what Mm -hmm. makes us sinful, what makes us dirty. And what he says is, it's not you eating certain kinds of food. And Mark's take on this is that Jesus was effectively saying... We can eat all things. The greater concern is what's coming out of you, meaning what's in your heart. Mm-hmm. Like what like what are the things that are coming out of your mouth? What are the actions of your life? He mentioned sexual immorality, murder, adultery, like right? even there he's referencing Ten Commandments, right? Yeah. So um, so that's an example of a place where Jesus seemingly recontextualizes the law of the Old Testament to a place where Certain things are done away with, but other things are upheld. In particular, the moral law is upheld. Um, Also in Mark, Mark 2, um, he says to, I believe the Pharisees here, Mark 2, 27, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. And that would have made a Pharisee's head spin, Mm -hmm. because Pharisees were pharisaical about keeping the Sabbath, Right. right? Like they were meticulous about it. And Jesus comes along and says, no, 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 the Sabbath isn't about some sort of obligatory or um, self-punishing form of ritualism. The Sabbath is for your good. It is for your benefit. It is for your rest and for your health. And he says the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, meaning you weren't made just to uphold these rules for the purpose of upholding rules. And so, again, Jesus is recontextualizing, or or we could say he is providing additional context, maybe, for what the purpose of these things are. Yeah. So he doesn't do away with the Sabbath, right? Um, he upholds that, but he also doesn't affirm the ritualistic way in which it was being kept by the Pharisees. Um, so, yeah, I think we see in the teaching of Jesus that, by and large, the, um, the sort of social laws... Um, many of the ritualistic laws that involved uh, clean and unclean things, um, the dietary laws, that those things are largely done away with um, through Christ. But uh, the moral law, loving God, loving our neighbors as ourselves, um, that that is, that is not only upheld, Jesus says that's the whole point. That's the point of all yeah. of this. And I guess the case could be made that the intention of the law if Jesus summed it up as loving God and loving others, the intention of the law was to bring Israel to a place where those things were possible. Mm, yeah. And so the purity laws, the cleanliness laws, the laws about clothes and your crops and the way that you maintain your house and all these things were meant for them to be able to enter into the presence of God mm-hmm. and be able to love God and love people. Yeah. So hold on to those things, because I want to talk about them a little bit more in our third interpretive lens, which is, we would just call it the canon, the lens of the canon. And remember, the canon, that word canon, is a term for um, the, the the text of Scripture, that it is a, it is a holy Scripture. Um, it is set apart as the Word of God. It is the canon. Um, so three questions we would want to ask about the canon— Uh, One is, what does the text say about itself? What does the text say about itself? So as you're reading the Old Testament and you're reading what's around whatever passage you're in, you're asking, what does this say about itself? Another question is, what connections are made to other parts of the Bible? What are connections made to other parts of the Old Testament? Um, And uh, an example of this would be something like Psalm 95. Uh, Psalm 95 says, For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, as at Meribah, as on the day at Massah in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test. 
Um, so that's an example of a place where you're blowing through Psalm 95, you're reading through it. He is our God. Amen. We are the people of his pasture. Praise the Lord. We are the sheep of his hand. Today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Okay, I got all of that. And then the psalmist says, like at Meribah, as on the day at Massa in the wilderness, when your fathers put me to the test. Right? So he's, the psalmist is writing to a people who would have known what he was talking about. Right? That, that That would have been like, oh yeah, that time when that thing happened. Um, for us, we're inclined to kind of blow through that and go, eh, I don't know what that is, but I think I kind of get the gist of what he's saying here. Right. But right, this is a point where the Bible is um, being self-referential, right? Yeah. Like it is referring to another part of the scripture, and what it's referring to is Exodus 17. What happens in Exodus 17? Yeah, so in Exodus 17, the Israelites are in the wilderness um, with Moses. God, through Moses, is leading them toward the promised land. And they get to a place that has no water. They got nothing to drink. Just two chapters previously, they had come through the Red Sea, so they had seen all the mighty acts of God. They get into this wilderness area, and they have no water, and they start grumbling against Moses and against God. And so they quarreled. So we're in Exodus chapter 17, verse 2. Therefore the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? So there it is. That's yeah. what Psalm 95 is referencing, these people who have no water. And ultimately, God provides water there in the wilderness. Yeah. Don't these, harden your heart. That's right. As on that day, like when your forefathers hardened their heart and grumbled against the Lord, thought God had brought them out into the wilderness to die. Yeah. Um, so yeah, what connections are made to other parts of the Bible? And then a, a hugely important question to interpret in the Old Testament is what do the New Testament authors say about this? And... Um, this takes us back to what we were talking about just a moment ago where we were talking about the law. The way that we understand the law of the Old Testament today, the law of Moses today, is through the lens of the New Testament writers. It is through the lens of Jesus. Um, it's the, through the lens of New Testament writers like Luke. If you remember in Acts, Peter has this vision of a sheet being let down from heaven, and there are all of these things in the sheet. And it's, and there, some of them are things that are unclean, right? Things yeah. that you shouldn't eat. And yet the Lord is showing him that not only are these things now clean, like you can eat these things now, um, because we are because at that point Peter's living in a new covenant era. Um, God is also showing him that he should not be prejudiced towards people who eat unclean things, right? He shouldn't be prejudiced toward Gentiles who are coming to know Christ yeah. because he has been under the impression that these are these are things that are unclean or an, are an affront to God in some way. And God is showing him in that moment, no, 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 things have now changed through Christ. You are no longer under this old covenant. You are now under this new covenant. Yeah. Um, so understanding what the New Testament authors say about the Old Testament is incredibly important. And um, you can go back and look at that text in Mark 7, where he de- Jesus declares all foods clean. Look at Mark 2, where he talks about the Sabbath. We talked about those just a minute ago. Um, Galatians 3, we can hit on as well, Taylor. Um, And I'll just read this to us, Galatians 3, starting in verse 2. This is Paul writing to the church in Galatia. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Like that's, that's the question he starts with here because the big conflict in the early church is between Jews who have grown up seeking to follow the law, grown up being told that Um, being faithful to the Lord is about adherence to the law and Gentiles who have no context for any of that. And so the problem in the early church is that you have some people who think in order to follow Christ, Gentiles have to first become Jews. Like they have to first buy into the law of Moses and into the covenants of the Old Testament in order to follow Jesus. And yet Paul repeatedly makes the case that no, that is not what's going on because we now live under a new covenant. Mm -hmm. So he begins with the church in Galatia going, did you get the Spirit, the Holy Spirit in your life because you followed the law? Or do you have the Holy Spirit in your life because of faith? And his answer is faith. It's Mm -hmm. It's not because you followed the law, it's because of faith. He goes on, are you so foolish having begun by the Spirit? Are you now being perfected by the flesh? 
Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him with, as righteousness? So even with Abraham, it wasn't just about him being obedient to the Lord. It was about him believing God. It was about his faith in God that then manifested as obedience. Um he goes on, verse 7, Know then that it is those of faith who are the sons of Abraham, not just those who follow the law, but those who have faith in God. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, In you shall all the nations be blessed. So here's a point, Galatians 3, in the midst of this whole conversation, where Paul's alluding back to the covenant that God made with Abraham. Um, so then, those who are of faith are blessed along Abraham, the man of faith. Verse 10, for all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, meaning if, if your only hope is you following the law, then you are up a creek mm -hmm. because you cannot save yourself by simply following the law. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. <laughs> so unless you're perfect and you aren't, you are going to be cursed uh, because you cannot do everything that is in the law. Um, verse 11, now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. One mm. of the most famous things Paul ever says. Yeah. So um, Paul does a great deal of work in his letters um, towards helping his readers understand this new covenant age that he and they are living in. And he does a great deal towards helping contextualize what those things in the Old Testament are about, why they're important, why they're good, but also how Christ um, sort of changes the game by fulfilling the old law and the covenants. So uh, what does the New Testament say about the Old Testament? Um, let's stop there for today. As always, that's uh, probably way more than enough information. Um, we're going to pick up next time. We're going to continue talking about interpreting the Bible. Um, we'll get into how do we interpret the New Testament, but we'll also wrap up our five interpretive lenses for the Old Testament. Um, and we'll look at the character of God in the Old Testament. And we'll also consider Christ in the Old Testament. Um, and how does the text point forward to Christ? Or how is the text fulfilled by Christ? Um, so we'll get into all that next time. Taylor, as always, it's been a pleasure. Likewise. <laughs> we'll see you guys next time.